Holy Father, are those the strains of triumphant music sounding through the gates ajar? Oh, that our minds and that our hearts might focus to where you are right now. The Spirit's here. May He teach us through Holy Scripture. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bible, please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And while you are finding Hebrews 11, I need to ask you a question. What is there about Disneyland that seems to capture the fancy of young and old alike? I remember the first time I laid eyes on Disneyland. I was a five-year-old missionary's kid who had never been to America in his life before. Aunt and uncle living in California saying, Boy, welcome to America. We're taking you to Disneyland. Wow. Well, that was back in the dark ages of 1957, just after they invented electricity. And so today, today, Disney World. Did you know this? Disney World, bar none, is the largest amusement park on earth. And I tell you what, Disney has a marketing strategy that is second to none. They began it back in 1987 with Super Bowl 21, and it has gone on every year since, except for 2005. The plan and the plot are simple. After the games, most valuable player is chosen. And those of you that don't know, we're talking about football here. After the MVP is chosen, and he's surrounded by that gaggle of reporters and photographers... A Disney agent is planted in that press, press of humanity, and the Disney agent calls out, Hey, you've just won the Super Bowl. What are you going to do now? Now, all the athletes on both teams have been carefully coached by Disney what to say. Disney, of course, isn't sure who's going to win, so it has to coach them all. And when the athlete hears that question, the MVP, he cries out, I'm going to Disney World if the team is from the East. I'm going to Disneyland if the team is from the West. Pretty clever marketing strategy, wouldn't you say? To capitalize on the kids' great sports heroes to push its magic kingdom. But did you know that that Disney really simply tore a page out of God's playbook? It's true. God's been doing this for millennia. Using His heroes to market His kingdom. I want you to open your Bible, if you haven't found it yet, to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. This is the Bible's Hall of Fame. This is the Bible's Hall of Faith chapter. You know this chapter. There, tucked away in the middle of this chapter, there is a simple strategy in God's marketing campaign for His unmagic kingdom that I want us to take a look at. Because if we'll get this marketing campaign strategy straight... I'm telling you what, we will really begin to live. And I I want to repeat that. We will really, truly begin to live. I don't know why I've never seen this before, and I predict you haven't either. So let's take a look at this. Hebrews chapter 11. Let's pick it up in verse 13. I'm going to be in the old King James. You read along whatever translation you've brought. If you don't have a Bible, I want you to follow along. There's a pew Bible in front of you, and that's the new King James. See how close these are. And that would be page 809 in your pew Bible. Hebrews chapter 11, let's begin in verse 13. These all died, hit the, hit the pause button right there. These all died, the first three words. These all died. 
All, all the heroes in the Hall of Fame, everybody before verse 13, dead. Everybody after verse 13, dead. Smack dab in the middle of the stroll through God's Hall of Fame comes this parenthetical insertion. These all died. I don't want to get morose on you on such glorious a Sabbath as today. But I need to recognize with you that the only reality you and I can count on in this life, now that we've passed the tax deadline... The only reality we can count on in this life is that you're going to die. And so am I. Maybe it'll come as a sudden heart attack has happened this week in our community. Maybe it'll come with a car careening across the center line. It may come with an interminable battle with cancer. It may come in your sleep. But if Jesus doesn't come, it will come. Hebrews 11:13. These all died in faith. Hit the pause button again. In faith. It's clear that you can, come, you can come to your final breath and still believe. Now, I've got to tell you one of my heroes in my little personal hall of fame. His name is John Wesley. And when Wesley was lying on his deathbed, his final words, let me put it on the screen for you, his last words, best of all, God is with us. And I'm thinking that is a great way to die. I don't know what the last words to Abraham, for Abraham were. I don't know what Sarah's last words were, these heroes in this Hall of Fame. I don't, I don't know what Noah's last words were, or even Moses's. But I know Wesley, and I'm thinking to myself, if I had to settle for last words, I'd be happy with that. Best of all, God is with us. These all died in faith. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises But having seen them afar off, they were persuaded of them and they embraced them and they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now, this is the old King James. Strangers and pilgrims. I'd be interested in what that couplet looks like in your translation. Strangers and pilgrims. The word for strangers in the Greek actually is xeno. Xeno. You see it on the screen there? From whence comes our English word xenophobia. Xeno means foreigners. Xenophobia is the fear of foreigners. A fear, by the way, that is gaining ascendancy in this nation. Unfortunately, since it is but a small step from fearing foreigners to fearing minorities of origin to fearing minorities of religion. And if we expel those we fear, I fear for us all. Watch out about the political bandwagon that you jump on. Think it through. Think it through. Well, strangers and pilgrims in the uh, King James. The NIV, NIV has it as aliens and strangers. The New Living Translation, foreigners and nomads. And New American, strangers and exiles. Now, here's the question. Have you ever been a foreigner? Half of this audience could raise a hand. You know what it's like to be a foreigner, don't you? I tell you what, I love to travel. But hands down for me, the best part of traveling overseas, for me, is the journey home. I'm telling you the gospel truth. Because when you travel abroad, have you noticed this? When you travel abroad and you land in a foreign country, it isn't the country that's foreign. It's you. Right? And boy, they don't want you to forget. Oh, no, we're going to keep reminding you, you do not belong. And so they'll have this big sign hanging up there. Foreigners and aliens queue here. What's up with that? What's the point? Oh, this isn't your home. You don't belong here. 
Got a visa. We'll let you stay for 30, 60, maybe 90 days. But you better be out of here when your time is up because you're an alien. You're a foreigner. And did we tell you, you don't belong. Wow, man. I love coming home. Hallelujah. When I come home, I'm a homeboy. Thank you, Jesus. No more standing in the foreigner alien line. I get to go in the line that says U.S. citizens only. And, of course, those of you that go home to your home land, you get to get in that same line, don't you? Of course you do. I've been gone once on an extended trip, several weeks long. And, boy, oh, boy, was I glad to be coming home. And when I went through immigration in Chicago, because that's usually where we go, right? When I went through immigration in Chicago, this guy did something that's never happened to me before. I mean, you know, you, you got the customs officer there, chung, 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 looking at you. Man, you don't look like a pitcher. What is this guy? You know, chung, chung, chung. And then he did something that was so special to me. He took my passport, and with a smile, he handed it back to me, and he said, Welcome home. Ah, oh, I felt like hugging and kissing him right there. But you don't want to do that with a customs agent. It could land you in jail fast. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. And they were persuaded of them, and they embraced them, and they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims. On this earth. They never quite felt, these heroes of God, did you notice that? They never quite felt that they belonged here on earth. Walter Brueggemann, the the great scholar, in his book, Cadences of Home, powerfully describes this not belonging sense that God's friends on earth experience today. And I want, you to, uh, I want you to see this quotation. In fact, it's in your study guide. Grab your study guide. Let's go to the study guide right now. This is mainly quotations. These are dynamite quotations. And so, ushers, would you quickly make sure that everybody here gets a study guide? And while they're doing that, let me say to those of you who are watching on television right now, if you'll go to our website, let me put it on the screen, www, there it is, www.pmchurch.tv. Click on there. Get to that site and Then click on to this series called Eternity's Edge. Eternity's Edge. And today's teaching, The Magic Kingdom. All right? So when you click on to The Magic Kingdom and it says, do you want a study guide? You see that little study guide? Click that that box. You'll have the same study guide we have. I want everybody, please, to have it. If you didn't didn't get it, just hold your hand up. We've got ushers coming down the rows. Let's go. Walter Brueggemann. This is his book, Cadences of Home, Preaching Among Exiles. Powerful book. Let's read. The metaphor of Babylonian exile will will serve well for my urging. Where's he going? It's my sense that when the preacher proclaims in the baptized community, in our present social context, in other words, when the preacher gets up to preach, the preacher speaks to a company, write it in, a company of exiles. Everybody in that church is in exile. Write it in, a company of exiles. This does not mean that the exiles will be all weak. We're powerless or inept people, for many are formidable. Nor does it mean that they are intellectually inferior, for some may be enormously astute, discerning, and sophisticated. Now, here it comes. It means simply that such people are at work seeking to maintain, I like this, an alternative identity, an alternative vision of the world, a different worldview, an alternative vocation in a societal context where, isn't this true about America? where the main forces of culture seek to deny, discredit, or disregard our odd identity. Oh boy, have you felt that? Now notice that last line. Our task is to sustain an alternative, subversive, 
countercultural identity. End quote. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? I.e., God's children throughout history, throughout life, God's children have gone through this world with this sense, I'm a stranger. I keep queuing up in the foreigner line. I keep queuing up in the alien line. I don't belong here. It's like that old gospel. I love that gospel song. You know that song? This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. If heaven's not my home, oh Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I won't feel at home in this world anymore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. They were persuaded of them, and they embraced them, and they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims, (coughs) pardon me, strangers and pilgrims on earth. Now verse 14. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. What country is this? And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now, verse 16, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly country. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, where did that notion come from in their hearts? That, that, that somehow this is not the right place. That there's another country for us. Where did that notion come from? I want to share with you a classic line. You'll have to fill it in. From the melancholy book of Ecclesiastes. I love the New Living Translation's rendition of this. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. Write it down. God has planted eternity in the human heart. Let me tell you something. When you were born straight out of your mama's womb, you came with the seeds of, of, of eternity already stuck inside of you. I don't care what you are. I don't care who you are. Every human being, atheists, agnostics, skeptics, and believers alike, are born with this eternity planted deep inside. For, for most, it's this undefinable, elusive, subconscious sense that there has got to be more to this life than just this. It's down deep. You're born with it. God has planted it in you. There's a hollow in the human heart. That hungers for eternity. And by the way, isn't this true? The more battered and bruised your life is, the more hungry you are for eternity. Isn't that true? Of course it's true. Which is why, by the way, Jesus intoned, it is almost impossible for a rich man to be saved. That's why. Because there's no need. That hollow has been jammed with greenbacks and securities and portfolios and real estate and toys, all very effectively repressing that hollow and not letting it cry out, you were made for eternity. Oh, Dan, bless your soul. Thank you. Uh, I, I hate to drink in front of people, but not that bad. When I drink these... I get an extra 30 minutes of energy for these sermons. And so I'm so, I'm so grateful. I'm so thankful. See, that's why he says you can't be saved. It's, it's almost impossible for the rich. Why? I've stifled it. But let that rich life, 
Let that middle class life, let the poor experience the bruising and battering and blooding of life. And I tell you what, it might be a disease, it might be divorce, it might be some sort of dysfunction. It could be a crisis I cannot even name to you today, but suddenly my hollow is exposed wide and naked. And I realize the only thing that will fill this hollow is eternity itself. He has planted eternity in our hearts. I was visiting with a woman this week, from not of this community. And this woman was in great distress, eventually in tears over unexpected indebtedness that the family has been experiencing. Their tax liability just came to them a few days ago, blew them out of the water way more than they had anticipated or had set aside. Their mortgage, for some inexplicable reason, was kicked up $500 a month. Their boy dropped out of school, but now they're stuck with the college tuition loan and bills that have to get paid. And medical insurance, even though it covers them, the difference between what insurance covers and what they've had to pay has taken them under. I tell you what, the longer that woman went, the worse I felt. Craig Brian Larson. Oh, this is a great line. He's absolutely right. Let me put it on the screen for you. No matter what our station... Daily life in a fallen world is a walk through a gauntlet of belittlement. That's what it is. A walk through a gauntlet of belittlement. Beaten, down, belittled, bruised, bloodied in this business of survival. There isn't a desperate heart that does not sense deep within its breast a longing for eternity. He has planted eternity in the human heart. Wow. And these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Verse 14, For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. They seek a better country. They seek a heavenly country. Which leads me to wonder. I'm going to wonder out loud with you and I need you now to really start wrestling mentally with me. Could it be that God has intentionally planted eternity in our hearts to be the divine antidote for all that ails us, all that troubles us as third millennials? Could it be that's why those, those seeds have been planted deep inside? So that if I visualize eternity, if I imagine this better country, if I dream about a land that is fairer than day, the very act, the very act, of imagining it begins something healing, a catharsis for my soul. In other words, what would happen? Let me ask you this. What would happen if every day I meditated on heaven? I mean, you know heaven, don't you? Let me put it on the screen for you. There's heaven. That non-virtual reality. That unmagical kingdom where God reigns. Where the only tears that glisten are tears of joy. Isn't that great? I bumped into a man on this campus just a few days ago, walking down the sidewalk. I asked how he was doing. His nose turned red and his eyes glistened with tears. And I thought, you know, there is so much pain in this life. None of that in heaven. In fact, you know what? The Bible tries to define heaven for us and it can't. The Bible has to resort to the negatives in order for us to understand what heaven's all about. No pain. No death. No hurt. No tears. No divorce. No disease, no war, no enemies. It just keeps saying what's not there. Because if the Bible told us what is there, it would blow 
our minds. And God says, you can't understand it. I can't even explain it to you. Let me tell you what won't be there. So radically opposite is God's unmagical kingdom. What would happen if you and I meditated on heaven every day? Every day we meditated on heaven. They said, ah, come on, but why, Pastor, why? Ah, Ted Decker, in his book last year entitled The Slumber of Christianity, Awakening a Passion for Heaven on Earth. Where's that book? That's not a very attractive uh, book cover, is it? But that really is the cover. The Slumber of Christianity, Awakening a Passion for Heaven on Earth. Decker shares a most insightful observation about hope. And you you have it in your study guide, and you're going to have to fill in two key words here. Let's go. Decker writing, what elevates our emotions and what dashes them to the ground? You want to know? What makes us jump for joy and what sends us into a pit of deep discouragement? You want to know? The answers are surprisingly simple. Write them down. Hope and hopelessness. If you think about what changes your mood from one of happiness to one of sadness, you will always find hopelessness. The guy's right, isn't he? Now, notice his definition. Notice this, folks, his definition for hope. Keep reading there. Hope is the primary force that drives human beings from hour to hour. Hope for a simple pleasure. You know what? I can hardly wait for this church board meeting to be over because I'm going home and I'm going to go on a walk with Karen underneath the stars and just just wind down. That's a very simple pleasure. But you live for it. I can get through this. Hope for a simple pleasure, a hug, a kiss, a juicy ribeye cooked to perfection. Well, we probably want to call that a, 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 a delectable cottage cheese roast cooked just short of burning. Just short of burning. <laughs> oh, hope. Uh, how about this? A new red Corvette, a beautiful home, a long vacation in Europe, the renewed health of an ill child or aging mother. These are among the many hopes that motivate our daily lives. Everything we do is driven by hope or hopelessness in one form or another. So here's the question, folks. What would happen if you and I, every single day, meditated, write this down, we meditated on heaven, carved out that little tiny box, that corner in our waking hours when we allowed our minds to wander into eternity. Now, if you want, read, read the great Old Testament chapter on heaven. That would be Isaiah 64. You're going to plant your own garden and eat from it, your vineyard. You're going to build your own house. You're going to live in it. A little baby will live to be 100 years old. Read that chapter. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. It's going to be a great place. Let your mind go. If you want to read from the New Testament, why don't you read Revelation chapter 21, the great heaven chapter in the New Testament. See a city that is so spectacular you can't even wrap your mind around it. What would happen if every day... How about, how about uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9? You know how that reads? Let's put that one up. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. How, this is Paul writing. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. Let your heart go. Let your mind go. I came across uh, some words I'd never read before in my life. I came across them this week. And I have them there in the study guide for you. I want you to consider a very intriguing notion. Let me read these to you. These are written over a century ago. Paul had a view of heaven. And in discoursing on the glories there, now watch this, the very best thing he could do was to not try to describe them. Have you ever wondered why the details for heaven, hit the pause button on that for a moment, why the details for heaven are so skimpy? I mean, why? Could it be that God knows how our minds function? And if God said, you're going to have pizza in heaven, 
I heard a preacher just a few days ago say, hey, we're going to have pizza in heaven. Well, hallelujah, let's have pizza. But the problem is half of the world's population says, if you're having pizza in heaven, I'm not coming. I want rice with chopsticks. You see, if God begins to get specific, oh, oh, we're going to play football in heaven. Well, there are all those people that play cricket and say, if there's football in heaven, I'm not going. If God gets specifics with our personal tastes and likes, He immediately rules out vast swaths of the human race. And so He says, you know what? I'm going to leave the details out. I'll tell you what's not going to be there, and you ought to be happy just for that. And tell me that beyond your mind, ear, eye, can, can, beyond it all, I've got heaven planned. Well, I'd never thought about that until I read this sentence. You know, that makes sense. Paul doesn't even try to describe it. He doesn't. What does he do? He tells us that the eye hasn't seen or ear heard or hasn't even entered it into the heart. We just read that a moment ago. Go to the next sentence. So, you've got to write this in. You may put your imagination to the stretch. Because if you have a Chinese imagination, heaven's going to look one way. If you have a Japanese imagination, it will look another way. If you have an American imagination, German, African, South America, it doesn't matter. Just your own imagination. Let it go. Put your imagination to the stretch. You may try the very best of your abilities to take in and consider the eternal way to glory, and yet your finite senses, faint and weary with the effort, cannot grasp it, for there is an infinity beyond. And I love this uh, punchline. It takes all of eternity to unfold the glories and bring out the precious treasures of the Word of God, because heaven will be even better than your wildest imaginings. Hallelujah. What do you say? Come on, let me hear a hallelujah from you. Hallelujah. So what would happen if you and I spent a little time every day, you know, we all have our worship, but a little corner of worship. Maybe you put on a song that reminds you of heaven or you read a poem that you keep in your Bible or you put on a symphony. Oh, that symphony does it. Maybe it's a scripture passage or two. It doesn't matter. Just let heaven, let eternity creep into your consciousness for a few moments. I mean, don't you suppose that our joys would be even brighter? I mean, if I'm loving pizza here, can you imagine what the food's going to be like in heaven? See? Don't you suppose our pain might be a little lighter and our tears a bit more bearable? I have just gone through the the most crushing crisis of my life. I would... I would kill myself. I would kill myself if I didn't know that God is going to have the last word and what I lost, He's going to make it up to me one day. I can hang on. I can hang on because I have eternity in my heart. Man, we can, we can, don't you ever quit. Don't you ever take your life. Don't you ever bail out on me. Stay on. Hold on. You got eternity. God has planted eternity in you. Don't you ever give up. I want to talk about depression. You know people who have been depressed. You might know some people who are depressed right now. I do. Maybe you're depressed. Statistics say that one in five of us, one in five of us will suffer depression sometime in our lives. You know what depression is? Depression is the strategic effort of the mind to deaden the sense of hopelessness. Depression numbs the mind. It puts the emotions to sleep. But in the heart of every depressed man, woman, young adult, and children, and now we're finding that children themselves are experiencing depression. In the heart of even the child, seeds of eternity have been planted. 
So that in the gray gloom of your depression, one day you'll walk around a corner and God will surprise you with joy as that seed of eternity meets the rekindled hope that God is going to make it up to you one day soon. I tell you what, could it be that the seeds of eternity that are inside of us are God's promissory note to the day I'm going to heal you of that depression? You've had it for days. You've had it for weeks. Some have had it for years. I'm going to lift that cloud one day. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what eternity is all about. Here we are talking about on eternity's edge. But what's the point of celebrating that we're on eternity's edge if nobody's thinking about eternity anymore? It's time to lock eternity deep within our hearts. These all died. These all died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, they were persuaded of them and they embraced them and they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they say such things, they who do declare plainly that they seek a country. They seek a better country, a heavenly country. One more line i got to leave with you. Write it down. Gordon Fee, New Testament scholar at Regent College. He's absolutely right in this describing the ancient community of faith with these words. They were a group of believers who lived, I love this, who lived in the presence of the future. Isn't that good? To live in the presence of the future. That's what God wants for us. To live in the presence of the future. That's what hope does. That's how faith grows. That's what eternity means. To live with Jesus. To live with Jesus in the presence of the future today. Today. Today and today and today. Until heaven comes. Oh my. I want to end with a story that Ted Decker tells about an old man who had climbed Mount Everest over and over and over in his life. Now, if you know anything about Mount Everest, you know that the cost of climbing the world's tallest summit is huge. But if you've read, if you've read books like, as I have, Into Thin Air, then you also know that the risks are staggering. Only one in three expeditions ever makes it to the summit, and many die in the attempt to scale Mount Everest. And so when, re when returning to that mountain, Yet one more time in the twilight of his life, the old man was asked, why would he risk such danger again and again? To which the old man replied, obviously, you've never seen the view from the top. Hmm. These all died in faith. Not having received the promises, but having seen them from the top. And were persuaded of them, and they embraced them, and they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country, a better country, a heavenly country. Hallelujah. Let us pray. Oh God. As you did with your friends of old, you have planted eternity in our hearts too. And so like they did, we want to live in the presence of the future. May that hope of heaven help us. 
Oh, Father, may that hope of heaven heal us as we live in the presence of the future until the future becomes present through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.